And welcome to another edition of Hoops Adjacent. I'm David Aldridge in D.C., my man Waz Lambray in L.A. Waz, how are you, sir? I'm good, man. The weekend is coming up. Um, I'm not even going to be one of those people that's ashamed or afraid to tell anybody. But as California is uh, our governor closed down L.A. County, me and the girlfriend are going to Napa. <laughs> there you go. There you so go. I'll be spending the weekend in Napa. Um, you know, I, I, have you ever been before? I've never been. Never. It's fantastic. Ever been? It's fantastic. Yeah, my my, oh, my woman is like a bit of a wine addict. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, yeah. she had been circling this for a while, and she's like, "Oh, I just want to take you," which secretly is just she just wanted to go. And right, so right, right. That's what we were doing. She was going. Yeah, we're going. <laughs> But if you didn't go, she'd go with somebody yeah, exactly. else. You know, she yeah, exactly. Whatever, right? Exactly. I got you, man. I got you. Well, I'm ve we're very excited about the show today. Later on in a few minutes, we're going to have Dr. Sanjay Gupta on from CNN. Uh, I don't think there's anybody better to talk about the, uh, the pandemic, talk about the NBA trying to restart down in Orlando in the middle of a pandemic in a state that is spiking in terms of its coverage right now, in terms of its uh, its. Uh, uh, number of cases right now, but um, we wanted to start the show for a few minutes to talk about an anniversary and a very important one. Um, and uh, I know this is important to, to you, Waj, to, to holler at it for a minute, which is that it's been 10 years, essentially, since LeBron James announced that he was taking his talents, as he put it, to Miami <laughs> to play for the Heat and leaving Cleveland. I think the actual date was July 8th, yep. I think. So, um, you know, it's been 10 years. Uh, it's been 10 years, and it doesn't seems like it was just yesterday. And it is a, you know, it's a momentous occasion. It's a momentous anniversary for a lot of reasons. Um, and I think there's, there's two parts of this, Waz, that, that people don't um, – that people may or may not remember that I think are equally important. Well, one's more important than the other, but, but the other one matters because of the optics. And, and the first part is the optics, which were horrible right. in my opinion. Right, right, right. There's no doubt about that. It's horrible optics for LeBron to do what he did in terms of not informing the Cavaliers until the very last minute that he was leaving, you know, using – and I, I get that they raise a lot of money, but I still think they use the Boys and Girls Clubs as a shield. How can you say this is a bad thing? We're raising money for the Boys and Girls Clubs. Um, when it was clearly just, I want, to, I want to tell people where I'm going and I want it to be on a TV show. Um, you know, that part of it, you know, it just, it just the, the way it was done, waiting 35, 40 minutes before you do it, just to build up the drama you know, and keep people watching. I just thought all of that was kind of, eh, you know, not his best hour. But I think you and I both agree was that <clears throat> the most important part of the decision was that it completely changed the NBA's landscape in terms of players taking control of what they were going to do, who they were going to play with, where they were going to play, and taking that power away from owners and general managers. And LeBron has done that forever yep. and is never going back. It's never changing. And the decision was ground zero of the player empowerment era in the NBA. Yeah. And, you, you know, you talk about the TV show, and I think so much of it gets framed as this being about the TV show and the reaction being about the TV show. 
and not the fact that, you know, and, and this gets lost oftentimes is that Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh had already announced what they were doing. Right, right. And so when once LeBron announced it, dawned on people like, hold on, all three of those guys basically made this happen. <laughs> right, and, right. and and they shift the paradigm of the league and they became obviously the best team in the NBA instantaneously. And, you know, when people try to act like that wasn't what what the hullabaloo was about, like that it was like, oh, Jim Gray took 35 minutes to ask questions. Like, no, these guys literally took the league by storm on their own, mm-hmm. took it over. Um, mm-hmm. just with the wave of a pen and just from their own vision, uh, people forget, but it goes back to three years before that, when the first domino that fell DA was when they signed their rookie extensions, their rookie right. max extensions, instead of doing five years, which has always been the custom, which is basically take as much money as you can as right. quickly as you can, whenever the opportunity strikes you. And they said, no. We're going to do three years because that'll be the first time um, that we get to do what exactly what we want to do and be free agents, right? Like you get drafted, right. then you become an unrestricted, then you become, excuse me, a restricted free agent where you can go out, get a contract, and your team has the right to match it. And so that's not truly any real choice. And then finally, after seven years of service in the NBA, you get to be a restricted free agent. And these guys right. had the foresight to do that. And I say foresight because one of their peers and buddies, Carmelo Anthony, um, infamously didn't. And Melo was just like, no, 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 no. Give me my money right now. Right. I, I don't right, care right. about the flexibility, the power that is. <laughs> but these guys had the foresight to want to do that, you know. And I just yeah. – and, 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 David, the reason why I wanted to talk about this is because it was a line of demarcation for me as well as a fan at the time. Um, and also, just for, to give people background and just, just full disclosure, like, I had been a LeBron James watcher, fan, follower since 2002. Essentially mm-hmm. since ESPN's first Sports Center special about, yo, Sports Illustrated gave this kid a cover. Shaq's going to his games. People are saying he might be the next Jordan, blah, blah. I was locked in from there. <laughs> so by right. 2010, I had already been locked into the LeBron James show for eight years. I was all in. Right. Um, the idea of whatever team you would pick, it was immaterial to me. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> I'm going to be locked into whatever this dude does because mm-hmm. the story has been so compelling thus far. And, you know, I remember the initial shock of the Miami. I was like, that is just crazy, <laughs> right? No. Like, I just, but not, like, I was just like, this is, and, you know, part of me had bought into the narrative of LeBron being this nice, sweet hometown kid, and he loved Cleveland, and I remember the whole year just thinking, there's no way this guy's going to leave Cleveland, and I remember kind of being annoyed by that fact, and so, therefore, mm-hmm. when he left, I was like, this is, you know, incredible, but, David, like, watching the coverage, the reaction, and all the things you mentioned at the top of the show, and I want to ask you about it too, um, the reaction in the the mainstream sports media by uh, overwhelmingly majority white, older, mainstream sports and NBA media, I remember just feeling that in my gut, like, this is wrong. This is messed mm-hmm. up. This is, like, you can't tell me this is all because a TV show didn't go off without a hitch. 
because it was a bad team. Like this, it just felt so visceral for me inside to watch the reaction or what I call extreme overreaction to to the point where honestly, David, I, I still haven't forgiven a lot of people in the media for how they did this dude. Um, just for picking a new team, I would love to get your sort of perspective because you were there in real time. You were obviously yeah. on top of the league at the time. What was mm-hmm. what was it like for you? It was, you know, you're you're exactly right in that the reaction was completely oversized to the actual decision. I mean, when you really cut it down to a guy wakes up one morning and says, you know what, I'm going to move to another city because I just think I have a better chance of making a living there. That's really all this was. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you break it down, a guy just decided to go live somewhere else. And people do that all the time. (laughs) You know, like, you know, and so why are you burning jerseys and, you know, having all that, doing all this? I think the, the, the main, the, I think the main catalyst for that kind of overreaction, frankly, was Dan Gilbert, Mm. you know, having literally having an online temper tantrum, Mm in the infamous comic sans post that he made, you know, talking about the player and, you know, and, and, and how disloyal he was as if, as if LeBron James owed his, his lifetime oh, fealty to Dan Gilbert. That's, you know what I'm saying? That's, and so that's the connotation of that was very distasteful to a lot of people, including me for, for, for one. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was, it was completely overblown. Um, and, and again, I think the un- another undercurrent to that was, was how dare this black player That's it. decide yeah. that he's going to do something and nobody can stop him. Right. Like some, it was really like, you know, it was literally like the last scene in, t- in trading places where the, where the Duke brothers go, turn the machines back on, <laughs> turn the machines yeah. back on. <laughs> 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 you can't do this to us. You, <laughs> you know? David, you know what movie it also reminded me of? And I don't know, have you ever seen Django? Uh, no, I can't. Uh, it's hard for me. It, it, <laughs> there's a scene in Django where, you know, Samuel L. Jackson is playing, he's playing the archetype of, you know, the historical figure of the house Negro. Yeah. Right, right, we right, all sure. know everybody, whether you black or white, we all know who the historical figure of the house Negro is. Um, he sort of gets more perks or more benefits. Whatever. We, y'all can go do the Googles on the he house just, Negro. You know what he had a he had a better deal in the field. Right, 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 right. <laughs> um, and and there's a scene where he finally meets Django for the first time, but Django rides in on a horse. Samuel Jackson's character cannot believe that there's a black man riding a horse because you know he's a free but like that's just not something you see ever and right. he sees he sees Django coming into the to the plantation on a horse and he taps his mask and he goes who is that negro on that nag why does he get to ride that nag what the what the hell is going on like that's what the response felt like to me it was just like who is this dude and why does he get to do this and mind you, and, and this is why I'm telling people, like, it's racial. I remember Eli Manning. I remember him and his pops bullying their way to New York. Straight up and down. And there were some people who were annoyed by it, but that's just what they did. They had the power to do it, and they did that thing. Right. And nobody... John, going back... John Elway. Back in John the Elway. Same thing. I'm not playing in Baltimore. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do it. Um, and so I just remember thinking, like, athletes do this all the time. 
You have power and you have agency and you and you feel a conviction about what you want for your life and your career. Powerful yeah. athletes go out and do it all the time. So I just remember being like, what the hell is going on? And just just the idea that LeBron owed something to the fans or Dan Gilbert, right? One, Dan mm-hmm. Gilbert, you know, he felt like he gave special prop perks to LeBron and his quote-unquote posse and his boys um, mm-hmm. the team playing and the this and the that as if <laughs> as if LeBron wasn't giving it back to him tenfold when it of comes course. to value of the franchise, the tickets, the concessions, the, the economy mm-hmm. of the Cleveland Cavaliers was so boosted by this one man. And let's right. face it. It was one guy. You know, like, there's no disrespect to Andy V and Month Williams and Delonte West and all these other guys. Like, it was one guy doing this. Mm-hmm. One guy mm-hmm. made the Cleveland Cavaliers the center of the NBA universe. One man, right. not Mike Brown, not whoever your GM was, damn sure not you, Dan Gilbert. One guy yeah. that you drafted, that you were lucky enough to stink the summer bef- the, um, the year before 2003 summer. And so you got to have him for nothing. And he- not, a girl, not El Gaskis. No, and, and that was another thing. That was another thing. It's, it's like, and with the fans too, of course, it's like this idea, you can't do that to the fans. I'm like, guys, this is a transactional relationship. The fans mm-hmm. loved LeBron because he was great. Had he not been great, they would not have loved him. Right. And you know how I know that's true. The Julius Zagowskis left the same team for the same <laughs> team, and nobody gave a damn. <laughs> that's how I know it's conditional. It's, con- mm-hmm. it's, it's conditional love. This is not the love that your mom has for you or your woman has for you, your man has for you, or whoever mm-hmm. has for you, where no matter what you do, they got your back, and they're going to love mm-hmm. you and be about what you do no matter what. Like, this love was conditional. You love LeBron James. Because he was great for seven years there. And then he left. And you no longer loved him. (laughs) So, like, Mm -hmm. the dude don't owe you nothing. And it's just, again, the the burning the guy's jersey and effigy. um, You know, again, bunch of white people not understanding those optics, DA. You mentioned optics before. (laughs) Burning the jersey of a black man in public in the Mm -hmm. United States of America. I mean... Talk about tone deaf. And then, of course, you know, you had the, the first game black in Cleveland, which I maintain to this day was a lynch mob. I don't care what nobody says. Um, my man Brian Windhorse, uh, Akron native, covered the Cavs mm-hmm. over there. Of course, followed LeBron to Miami. He talked about mm-hmm. it subsequently and was like, that was the most disgraceful thing he's ever been a part of in his career. Ever. Yeah, no, I was at... I was at that game. My goodness. I was at that game. I was at that game covering it for Turner, and it was as ugly a, a scene as I've ever witnessed in 30 years. You know, the only thing that's even comparable to it is the things I heard people in Boston say to Patrick Ewing when I was covering the Celtics Knicks playoff series in 1990. And it's the one time in my 30 years that I actually started rooting for one team over the other because normally I just don't care. Wow, you know, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to wow. me who wins. But that day in Boston, it mattered to me. I started rooting for the Knicks. Mm. Oh, man. <laughs> because of the things I heard shouted behind me on press row to Patrick Ewing wow. when the Knicks were playing in game five of that series. Um, wow. And so, that Cleveland crowd reminded you of that. Yes. It's the only thing that's comparable. Wow. Um, and it was just the, the nastiness of it. And, you know, the only saving grace is that the, the heat blew their doors yep. off and one by 80 right. or whatever it was. 
and there were like a thousand people in the stands at the end of the game. So, um, so, you know, it was, yeah, I mean, it was just, again, completely outsized and complete overreaction. As I've often said, um, you know, in the years subsequently, first of all, as you mentioned, he played there seven years. I mean, how long is he supposed to just stay there and wait for the team to be good? Right. <laughs> you, know? Uh, or, you know, he carried a team, which was the worst team in the, in the history of the NBA finals to the finals. Yep. Um, by himself, yep. essentially. <laughs> um, and then the second point is uh, concurrent to that is name me the second best player in the Cleveland Cavaliers in those seven years. Who was it? Delonte. <laughs> I know for a fact in 09 against the Magic, the second best player on the team was Delonte West. I'm not going to. You could. I'm, that's just you know. a fact. Um, in 2010, where. You know, LeBron has had essentially had two bad or three. If you want to count the finals in 07 was a bad series, too. Mm -hmm. But everybody understands what was happening there. That's an mm -hmm. all time mm -hmm. great Spurs team. Um, you know, young guy, not fully formed as a player yet. Yeah. Got its doors blown off. We understand that. The um, 2010 against Boston, bad series. There's no two ways to, to say it. 2011 in the finals against the Mavs, bad series. And essentially, LeBron has never had a bad playoff series in 10 years well, since then. <laughs> right, right. No, the, the point is he, you can't name the second best player because there isn't no. one. <laughs> yeah. No, Cleveland was you terrible. Know, you want to say it's, a, you wanna say it's a Il Gaskas? Yeah. Okay. Andy Maybe v. it was Il Andy V, Antoine Jameson. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Watch so this check. Yeah. That's that's the level of guys he had to play with. So how long is he supposed to wait for the team to give him players that are good enough to win a championship? 100%. You know, so that's why I, you know, I had no problem with it. And 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 the bigger point again is that this put control of free agency completely in the hands of players for the first time. And it's never going to change. And now we've seen it throughout this decade, this past decade, and it's never going to change. And I think that's a good thing. And, and I know that yeah. we've seen it come full circle. Um, yeah. And I'm talking about last July with Kawhi Leonard, where right. literally yeah. he has LeBron groveling to him. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. like LeBron, the architect of the decision, right. is now right. on the other side of that equation. Kawhi mm -hmm. Leonard has LeBron talking about it's going to be your team. I'm retiring soon, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. You know, basically begging this guy to come play for the Lakers. And he has the Clippers essentially mortgaging their entire future to make this right. man happy. Yes. You see it. Like, the, he, had, he had everybody waiting. He's giving no information to nobody. He's got the league in the palm of his hands. Mm -hmm. And that's and that just straight up is not the case but for what these guys did in the summer of 2010, 10 years ago, um, that was just so powerful. And like you said, it's just now the norm in the league, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, and I know that it's disruptive for teams and it's disruptive for fans. You can't plan more than a couple of years in advance. And you know what? Life in the big city. So, <laughs> uh, so, so with that, we're going to we're going to pivot now and bring in our guest. I'm so happy that he's here, I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta from CNN, to talk about the restart in Orlando. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you for welcome to the show and thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, it's a real honor. I, I've really been looking forward to this. I love sports. I, I think we all need sports, and so I'm delighted to talk about it. Well, I, Dr. Gupta, I mean. I, there's so much, <laughs> there's so much to start with, but I mean, I, I think we have to have maybe a baseline to, to begin with. I mean, the numbers just, just seem so overwhelming. I looked at the Florida numbers in particular because of the NBA and, you know, they went over 10,000 cases yesterday at right. 10,000 in a day. Yeah. 
new cases and Texas is spiking and Arizona is spiking nationally. The numbers just look horrible. Are they, are they as horrible as they look to a layperson? They, they are definitely uh, going way up. And, and the reality is that we are only still finding probably about a tenth of <laughs> the actual cases out there. But let me tell you, though, because you know, it's not all grim when you think of it that way. That means there's a lot more virus out there. But it also does mean that there are a lot of people out there, as we have known for some time, that are infected. They're carrying the virus in their body. They're infected. They test positive, but they don't have any symptoms mm. or they have such minimal symptoms that they right. wouldn't even know it. So, mm. you know, they're, they're, it's, it's a little bit of bad news, good news. And it's been the case almost since the start. Like right now, if you were to ask just in general, how likely is someone to get sick from this or how likely is someone to die from this? We still don't have a good idea. If you look at just the absolute numbers in the country, it looks like 5% roughly of people who get this virus die from it. I don't think it's nearly that high. Mm, and if right. you say there's 10 times as many people who have this virus, then the, then the fatality ratio drops to 0.5%, right? right? Which, which, you know, again, it's good news, bad news. There's a lot of virus out there and it's going to influence a lot of decisions. But it is also true, which I've always tried to remind people for the last several months, that the vast majority of people are not going to get sick from this. It's a question of if they are going to get someone else sick from it. Right. I, I would like to know as somebody who, again, I, I pay attention as much as I can, but at a certain point you start to just, you know, get, get disillusioned by all of the news that you're getting when it concerns the virus. Um, what's the difference between, why do you, why, what's your best guess I should ask? Because I'm somebody who's, I'm from New York, but I live in, LA now and mm. at the peak of it in New York um I was it was just very scary what was happening and I think it was at the peak was 800 people dying per day yeah. from this in New York City how come we're not seeing that in places like Florida and Texas well you know I think there's I think there's a couple things one is New York is was obviously a a very um unique city it's very densely populated yeah. initially there were a lot of people moving around and probably spreading the virus mm. And that certainly had an impact. But I think there's three things that have happened since then. One is that we have learned some things in the medical community. And I still work at the hospital every week. We, we've learned how to better care for these patients. Mm -hmm. Typically, you know, someone comes in with breathing problems and a respiratory virus, they might end up on a breathing machine. Mm. We know with this virus that that is not always the best case. We try and avoid the breathing machine as much as possible because their lungs are just behaving differently. They don't respond to breathing machines as well. Mm, also, right. there's a couple of medicines out there now which can um, help people who are critically ill. Mm. It's not necessarily for people who have mild illness, but that can help. I think the, the, the third thing is that we are seeing a younger population now being affected by this. If you mm. look across the country, about half the new infections are in people under the age of 35. Wow. So we, we know that those people are less likely to get very sick from it. So that's going to bring down okay. the, the fatality ratios we're wow. talking about. One thing I do worry about, though, you know, is that if they go start spreading it to people who are older, I'm 50, I'm not considered vulnerable, but, you know, my parents, other pa people, if they start spreading sure. it to people, then you may see death rates start to go up a little bit again. What is the what is the current science with regard to, you know, younger people in terms of the outcomes are, are different? They they won't they won't die at the rates that older people mm -hmm. who get this will die. But what, what do we know about the damage? Because you keep hearing these things about, you know, permanent damage to the lungs and things like that, even in people who don't die from this thing. What do we know? 
Yeah, David, that, that's a that's a great question, and it's something that I've been following quite a bit. In fact, I was on the phone in the middle of the night、uh, with China with my colleagues in China because you know they're at the other end of the clock and they had some new research on this. But you're you're absolutely right.、Um, you you know we tend to think of this as either you live or you die, and there are a lot of people who are somewhere sort of in between that who who clearly survive this, but they do have these long term impacts. One of the ones that has jumped out at me a bit is. Uh, the the longer term impact on overall lung function.、Mm-hmm. So in some of these studies, and these were in younger people, people under the age of fifty five, who had a decrease in in pulmonary capacity, how well they could actually absorb oxygen, how well they could excrete carbon dioxide, and what that meant for them. And th- these are even in people who were you know pretty athletic, you know people who really focused on fitness, that they would get winded. You know, running a city block when before they wouldn't get winded, or they would get winded going up a flight of stairs. It wasn't catastrophic, but as you guys well know, if you're an athlete and someone who focuses on fitness, it feels like you've really gotten the wind taken out of your sails. Yep, so、right. we don't know how long that's going to last. I have to be humble here. Other than scientific community has to be humble. This is a new virus. We're six months into this, but there have been longer lasting. Even if the box is checked, survived, recovered. If you go and talk to them and really ask them about their lives, they'll tell you, "Look, I, I'm, yeah, I'm recovered. I'm thrilled that I'm alive, but I'm not the same in terms of what I could do. Maybe I'll、right. still continue to get better, but we, we, we still don't know yet." You know, the, the natural pivot is, what does that mean for professional athletes? Yeah, right? right. I mean, so you know, you have these, and these are the 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 best athletes in the world, the most well conditioned athletes in the world, the, the most physically fit, the best in terms of nutrition. They have access to dietitians and, and and personal trainers that people don't have. What does this mean for them in terms of their ability to perform at the highest level? They are the ones who are going to feel even incremental changes the most. And there, there will be incremental changes if they get infected.、Uh, that 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 is a reality. It's 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 an illness. You know, much in the way if they got a another respiratory virus,、uh, they would be knocked down for you know a couple of weeks, not really able to perform. Whatever, it would be the same thing here. The big difference to your question, we don't really know how long that will last. It does appear、right. to last much longer than other respiratory illnesses. It's it's a bigger risk. I think th- there's no question about it for two reasons. One is that this is very contagious. So、right. you know they they measure contagiousness with this thing called R naught, which basically means how likely am I to spread it to somebody else, and how many people am I likely to spread it to? And right, right. now they say it's two to three people. So if one person has it, they spread it to two to three. Those two to three people spread it to two to three more, and you can get an idea of how you know how that goes, sort of goes from there. But I think、right. the other thing is just how serious is this virus then to the body? We know that it can affect the lungs, but it can also affect you know the central nervous system. It's the weirdest thing. People may have loss of smell and nothing else.、Mm. I, 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 you, we're still having a hard time explaining that.、And、I'm a neurosurgeon. I've been talking to my neuro colleagues about this. We don't know why would it cause such a precise deficit in the body, like loss、right. of smell and nothing else. People develop COVID toes, you know, where they just have these painful feet as a result of this. Obviously, that would be detrimental to an athlete as well—not their、yeah. lungs, but they can't、right. perform. They can't play basketball. So, you know, it, it's it's harder to figure out. It's a bigger risk, which is why you know they got to do everything they can to to limit. They can't approach this from this idea that, hey,、uh, these are young, athletic, healthy guys.、Uh, they're likely to be just fine. And、they're not likely to die from it. You can't approach it with that mindset, because with、mm-hmm. athletes, even incremental changes、uh, are monumental changes when it comes to their profession and what they do. 
Absolutely. This brings us to the NBA. Right. Now we we know that that Major League Soccer is at least we're going to try to have this tournament <laughs> next week in Orlando. Um, we've already seen on the Dallas team two players test positive since they've gotten to Orlando. Uh, another four players have tested positive before they got to Orlando. So in terms of this spread, whether it's a non, relatively non-contact sport like soccer where players are just running compared to a, a somewhat physical sport like basketball where there is um, contact, and then you get to kind of the ultimate sport of football where there's enormous amounts of contact, what's your level of concern with team sports? Well, it, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a high level of concern and maybe, maybe the highest for basketball, I, I'm sad to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in part, you know, I was having this conversation with folks at the, uh, at the NFL and there's, a, you know, social distancing and football are not compatible, as, as right. you're saying. Right. They are looking at all these different technologies, trying to think about, you know, could you have these full face shield masks, you know, to try and decrease the viral spread. They're not going to be perfect, but that could go a long way. Obviously, mm-hmm. they're not doing that in basketball. It'd be very hard to do. Right. Uh, they're going to try and decrease, uh, you know, on the on the bench, you know, people wearing masks there and things like that, but it's going to be hard. I, I, I do think with basketball, you know, when you think about virus spread, you think about distance, you know, and everyone here is six feet, which you can't right. do, but they also think about duration. You don't want to be in close proximity for longer than 10 minutes. So with basketball, you are moving around a lot and you're not going to be close to someone else for that long at any given time. That'll be helpful, but you're breathing hard. You're putting a lot of virus into the air. That's going to be challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if if the models and, and I'm I know you guys know sort of the plans uh, and I've read through them as well for the NBA right. in Orlando. Right. But I think if if they can be executed perfectly, you might be able to create essentially a a, a bubble, you know, of, okay. of a virus free zone. But it has to be executed perfectly. And I think the biggest question is going to be what's the trigger for pulling back. Uh, if right. someone does test positive, how is that going to be handled? And that has to be really clearly communicated. So it's not kind of a, hey, maybe we do this, maybe we do that at that point, because I think that's going to cause a complete loss of confidence in the players, in the community of people who are helping the players, you know, the hotel workers, the staff, the families, everybody, unless there's a really well laid out plan for what happens at what point. I would like to know, because obviously the goal of the bubble, the the goal of, you know, slowly ramping up to where you get guys to one place and to, you know, all the guys on your team to the same city and you start checking them every day and you start practicing and all of that. The goal is to get to July 30th or whenever these guys fly to Florida um, with every single person who shows up there being healthy, right? Uh, what do you think is the number one thing that must, is imperative to happen Um to ensure that this bubble doesn't actually burst outside of obviously going out and partying in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I, I think that, I mean, that is a challenge, right? I mean, you have people who are going to be going stir crazy and right. you know, they, they are going to want to get out and, and you inadvertently will come in contact with people because they're living in these hotels uh, on property and people who are, you know, working the staff at the hotels and all that. Uh, everyone's going to have to be honest and they're going to have to have these, these real trigger points because the testing is, is really going to be helpful. And they got a really sophisticated program of testing in place, a, a program, mm-hmm. frankly, that I wish we could have for the country. But right. speaking of the NBA, they're going to be able to have that. But the tests are still not perfect. 
there's a certain false negative rate with these tests and things like that. So you still have to behave like everybody has the virus potentially. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the, the biggest risk is going to be any outside introductions of the virus into the bubble. Mm. And, you know, you have the players doing what they're doing, but what about the staff at the hotels? I wasn't clear from the 115 page document exactly. <laughs> right. What about all the, because, you know, and the other thing I'll say, you know, which I think everybody fundamentally gets, obviously the players and the teams are really highly incentivized to make this work. Um, there, there's a, you know, a significant, it's good for them. It's good for the country in terms of being able to see sports. And there's a big financial benefit as well. I do worry about the staff at the hotels who are going right. to be taking on, you know, a significant risk to do this and have to be completely, completely inoculated against potentially bringing virus into the bubble. They don't get to live there. They got to go home to their families at night then they got to come back. They're going to be tested. They're going to be, but they're coming in and out of the bubble more. So I think that's the biggest risk guys. You know, I mean, I, I think that the, that and, and, and just everyone being honest about potential exposures. If players do go out and are in some high risk activity, they may need to self quarantine for a period of time and just be honest about that. To that, to that, along those lines, I should say the, the, the spike in Florida is just, it, it just is, it's, an, it's astounding how many cases there are in Florida and, and no matter how well intentioned and how much detail the NBA has gone to, to really create a, a bubble that, that can work if everybody's honest, how difficult will it be to pull off in a state where the spike is just out of control right now? Right. And, and so, you know, if you have your players and your, the, the community of the team within the bubble, I think you're in a, in a, in a good situation. But exactly your point, David, Unfortunately, these bubbles can't operate completely independently. They have to have other people who are helping make the bubble work. Yeah. Um, and, and if you are in a community where the virus is spreading, really the question ends up being, so I live in Orlando. I, I don't, but I'm just saying if I did live in Orlando, what is the likelihood if I was carrying around my day doing my normal sort of activities that I might come in contact with someone who has COVID? As the virus is spreading more rapidly, that the answer to that question is much more likely to be yes. I came in yeah. contact with somebody today with COVID. And then, you know, how quickly could that be identified that I would get a call from the Department of Health saying, hey, you need to quarantine. You can no longer be entering the NBA bubble because right. you came in contact with somebody. That process can take several days. And, 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 and there you, you, you have another problem. I think when they made this decision, you remember Florida was actually looking pretty good at that right, point. In right. fact, the governor came out and said, hey, look, we, we essentially dodged the bullet. Was, was Mission the accomplished. Sort of <laughs> yeah, mission accomplished, right? I mean, man, some of these things are going to come back and haunt us, right? Right, right. And I say that, again, with all humility. I'm not of making course. fun because nobody knew, I mean, nobody knew everything when this thing started. And anybody yeah. who tells you they did, they're lying because right, right. it's a novel virus and we did not know exactly how this was going to behave. Remember with SARS? SARS yes. was a lot, you know, that was a big coronavirus that affected how many people around the world? 8,000. How many people wow. died? 800. Mm, 8,000 wow. only people were infected in the entire world. So people, right. when they heard this coronavirus, they thought, is this going to be like SARS? Bad. But, but you know, 8,000 people, that's, yeah. that's manageable. Yeah. Now we have, you know, 5 million people around the world who, who've been infected. So it's a totally different picture.
so doctor um we're sports people so we love sports right i mean i think most people and i think a lot of people who yeah. aren't in this business also love sports but i'm i'm having difficulty frankly kind of weighing the potential benefits and i understand that sports matter to people i've 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 been doing this for 30 years. I know that sports are important to people and it helps people cope from a mental standpoint. It's important to have that release. It's important to have that, that time with your family and with your friends, um, all putting the Jersey of your favorite teams on rooting for your favorite players and having that bonding time and eating food and drinking and all that stuff. But I'm having trouble weighing the benefit of that to the potential costs of putting games back on, on a large scale level. Where are you on that? Where do you where do you weigh that? People need their sports, but what's the number past which you know? Uh, there, what's the acceptable number of in, infection and and or death for my entertainment? Well, David, I, I mean, first of all, I appreciate that thoughtfulness. I mean, you know, I, I think I think people being thoughtful about this can can go a long way because it just makes us evaluate our decisions differently. If we're thinking that way, it, it makes us evaluate our individual decisions in terms of could potentially infect somebody to our macro decisions as a society. Here's where I come down on it. And I've thought a lot about this and I'm like you, I, I love sports and, and I miss them. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I have kids and th that's something we love to do is to watch sports. We love to go to sporting events as we can. Those are some of our favorite memories as a family. Yeah. If you ask, Hey, yeah. what's your favorite memory as a family? They typically revolve around sports for us. Yeah. And, and so that's very true. Wh where I come down on this is that I think everyone is making a risk reward decision in their own minds right now. And they're doing it as individuals and they're doing it as organizations. The NBA is making a risk reward proposition, which I get. The thing, and this may sound a little bit off to you initially, but, but hear me out. The thing that I come down on is I really do worry about all the other staff that are part of right. this because right. ultimately sure. we're all human beings and, and the virus doesn't care if you're a professional basketball player or if you're the person who's helping, you know, uh, provide services within the hotel. Right. If the NBA as an organization wants to do this and they recognize that there's all these rewards, there's a reward to society, there's a financial reward to themselves and whatever it may be, I get that. And, they, and you know, I'm not saying they're not being thoughtful about that, but the other people don't, won't have that same risk reward proposition. They're not, right. you know, they, they're potentially all risk and very little reward from doing that. So my parents live in Florida. And, you know, we've worked in different industries and I have lots of people who work in the hotel industry in our, in my friend circle. And I think about them and I think, yeah. so what are they going to, you know, how do you, how do you explain this to them? And then God forbid, one of them were to get sick or even die. How would I explain that to their kids? So in order for basketball players to play basketball, this person, you know, got infected and ended up getting sick or dying. I think that's where it becomes really real. And I don't mean mm -hmm. to paint it too gloomy, but you, you asked the question, where do I come down on this? When I work through all the various metrics in my head and sort of, you know, the various calculus, like here's how this could play out, here's how this could play out. I think there's ways to keep the basketball players pretty safe, much safer than the rest of the community, even mm -hmm. in a state like Florida where mm -hmm. the virus is spreading. Right. But you have all these other people who might be potential sources of infection to the bubble and they themselves could get sick. What would be your ideal version of how we were handling the virus as a country, right? Because, you know, the places that everybody says is quote unquote, getting it right are some pretty jackbooted places, you know, <laughs> like um, it's the, the, their approach to things generally when it comes to 
things that don't um, pertain to coronavirus are pretty, how should we say, authoritarian. And, mm-hmm. you know, as much as people might like to be like, oh, we live like this or we live like that, like the bottom line is it's not like China here. It's not like right. Vietnam here. People do enjoy a certain amount of freedoms and it, and it would be tough. And we saw it in places like Orange County where people were marching for the right to, you know, get pedicures and stuff. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying, like, what would be the idealized version in your mind that we could generate that, you know, we can conceive of doing um, here in America? You know, and I'm talking about no expense spared. Well, was I'm the same way. I mean, I, I, I hear you. And, you know, we are a, you know, every country is different. And I think the United States, uh, you know, there's certain things that the United States citizens value and I value, you value yeah. very much. I will, I will remind you though, you know, if you take a country like South Korea, they never went into lockdown. Mm. They did not go into a lockdown phase because they took this seriously from the start. So as soon as there were a few infected people in in South Korea, they immediately were testing and isolating them, talking about the same exact things we're talking about with the NBA. They were just doing that. The country was sort of a little bit uh, like a bubble in the sense at Mm. that point. They were aggressively Mm -hmm. testing and isolating and they got ahead of it. Mm. And they're a country of 50 million people. So they're a lot smaller than us. But you know how many people have died in South Korea? Fewer than 300. Wow. Okay. In Taiwan, Mm. which borders China, Fewer than seven, I think seven or eight people have died total, wow, not 7,000, right. seven. Right. So, and then, you know, look at the European Union. I mean, I think, Waz, they're probably more similar to us in, in some of the issues that you're referring to. And they had a terrible time in some countries like Italy, but now they brought their curve way down to a few hundred cases a day, as opposed to where we may be headed 100,000 cases per day. What I would say is, look, this, this sucks. Okay. I mean, mother nature has reared her head and it sucks. It's like a bad storm. Nobody wants this at all, but it's happened. And I think if it were a storm, you would have hunkered down. And if it's a hurricane, you hunker down for a few days, right? And then it passes with this. We probably needed to have hunkered down earlier and, and more aggressively than we did. Basically half the country sort of at any given time was in stay at home mode. And that just allowed this virus to spread. And, and now we're in the position we're in. I promised you at the beginning that I wasn't going to spend a lot of time talking about the rear view mirror stuff, but that is, yeah. that is the truth. You know, we did not need to be an authoritarian country to, to be in a much better position right now. New Zealand basically has no cases. Yeah. You know? um, so now going forward, I do think that there's going to be places in the country that in order to really get a hold of this and just stop the transmission of this virus, they may need to, at least for a period of time, going to stay at home mode again. And while they're talking about that out in your area in Southern California, as you know. Oh, I know. Is, <laughs> you know, and I know it. I, look, I, I, it's, 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 I can feel for you. I mean, I'm not trying to minimize that. I'm not trying to say, hey, that's no big deal. You just got to do this. I'm not one of those doctors. Sure. But look, if the country were my patient, if the country yes. were a human body and I was a doctor, I would say, hey, look, I empathize with what you're going through here. We can get through this. It's going to require an aggressive therapy, but then we're going to get on the other side of this curve. We yeah. didn't do that. It's kind of like it's kind of like I recommended a patient a certain therapy. The patient did it for a couple, three days instead of doing it for 10 days. And then the infection came back and they're upset that the infection came back. Well, right. I get it. But, you know, we've got to carry this therapy out. And and, and there's evidence that it works. So that's what I would say, you know, right now. Um, 
And in and, and places where the numbers are continuing to increase and they're increasing significantly, that may need to happen for a period of time. These stay at home for a period of time until we can get um, get this under control. I, I don't know if you got to read the entire 113. I read report. most of it. I, I'm very yeah. fascinated by this. So, And I think it's a good model for other parts of our society. So I really dug into it. Yeah. What did you like about it? What do you think they did? What do you think they got right? I think that the, well, I think that the idea of, of having some sort of regular testing um, will go a long way toward, mm-hmm. toward actually getting us safer. Um, I think the fact that they're, they're, they're thoughtful about how they want to uh, uh, take care of the players, uh, acknowledging the fact that there's going to be a, you know, they're going to be stir crazy when they're living in the bubble and anticipating the needs of people in a situation like that for long periods of time trying to understand that there is the matter of the mind and the matter of the heart, the tug of the Mm -hmm. heart in terms of what people are going to do. What I like about it is that, you know, I look at these large organizations and I say, are they, are they setting examples for what we could be doing as a country? Like I just, I even say to you guys, I mean, you're, you're in your own homes right now when you're typically doing your work, you're probably can be together and see each other and stuff. If you could get tested on a regular basis, not only would you have the physical confidence about not having the virus, but you'd also have the psychological confidence. Yep. Well, as you think, well, Dave doesn't have it. Yep. I feel right. good about that. Yep. You know, I'm going to sit here and do, do this, this radio show with him. We're talking, talking loud, probably putting, if we were infected, putting virus into the air, but I know he doesn't have it. Right. So I, 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 I think that this, what I'm describing is not the rest of our lives, <laughs> right. but it is, it is a period of time that we're going to have to go through this. So I, I, I like that. I, I think what I like is an organization like the NBA, which, by the way, I give a lot of credit to when they suspended their season as well. Right. I, had been, I had been beating the drum on this issue for probably a month and a half at that point. Wow. And then the night Adam Silver announces the NBA is suspending its season, I'm getting all these calls. Hey, what's going on? <laughs> I'm like, seriously? Right. I've been talking right. about this for a month. You know? Right. 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 Now the MB- but they took, they took a lead in that and people paid attention because yeah. what the NBA does matters. So the fact that they're taking this seriously, I think matters. And so I right. like that part of it. It's a really detailed document. They thought about a lot. A couple of unanswered questions. Um, what does happen if, if you know, a, a, the players start to have a significant outbreak on their team or a right. few key players who are playing all the time? have have uh, are diagnosed with the infection what happens at that point what are those triggers i think that that's going to be a a key question going forward and there's not an easy answer there is not and that's kind of what keeps i think all of us up nights is you know we saw with the jazz you know it, it it was Gobert and then it was Donovan Mitchell and it happened very quickly, you know, um, and it does not take very long. I don't think for, for this virus to go through a basketball team, which is almost always in close proximity to one another. Right. right. So, and, and, you know, and, and so, um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're all kind of wondering what happens if team whoever has five guys, you know, three of whom are starters test positive. What do you do? You know, do you forfeit? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I have no idea what, what happens next. And are guys comfortable playing against guys that they know have it? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I, I think that, that that is a very, very fair question. And you know what? I, I think everybody may have their own risk tolerance. Mm. I mean, I talk to players, some of who, who have told me that they don't want to be named, but they, they also have family members in their homes who uh, want one 
and you may figure it out, but one player has a 12 year old daughter who's, who's a cancer patient mm, undergoing yeah. chemotherapy Wow! and yeah. she's immunocompromised. And so he's thinking to himself, look, I, and this is exactly what he said to me. I feel pretty comfortable. I don't think I'm going to get sick. Um, yeah. that, that's his own. He's done his reading, a smart guy, and that's how he's arrived at his decision. But God forbid you were able, he brought that virus home and his daughter got sick. Right. And I don't think, you know, the psychological devastation that would cause uh, would is enough, I can tell you, for him not to play. He's yeah. not going to do it, you know. So, and then if you say, hey, look, somebody on our team tested positive, now my risk has gone up even higher. That is a, that is a, um, you know, that's another whole decision matrix for these players. That that mental piece, doctor, I, I wonder, you know, I always wonder about mental health of players for a lot of different reasons. And it's certainly become more, it's become more prevalent to talk about it and to understand what these guys are going through or to try to understand what these guys are going through in the last few years. But what, you know, what is, what is that mental piece um, on top of the physical uh, that, that the league may have to address again in real time. If these guys get down there and they say, wow, this is bigger. This is more weighing on me more than I thought it would. And I'm really struggling with this and the idea of going out there and, and, and exposing myself and my family. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, I, and I read in, in the, in the 115 page plan that they, you know, they have been thoughtful about that. They have these, they have these mental health counselors that are going to be around recognizing both, you know, the the um, risk reward proposition in these players' minds constantly changes. On top of that, they 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 miss their families, and and that may suddenly affect their decision. They just don't think it's worth it anymore. Um, all, all of that, and and I think every player is going to be approaching this differently. I, I think it's very hard to paint with a broad brush how all these players are going to approach it, and not and again, not to mention the rest of the community, not just of the NBA, but but everyone else who's, who's a part of the support staff and everybody that's going to be, you know, in and out of that bubble. Yeah. It's, it's a lot to think about. It I is. Mean, and, and we have, there's no precedent for something like this. Exactly. There's no right. model we can point to and say, here's how to do it. That's another reason I was so interested in this document because it, it could work. It mm -hmm. could work. Mm -hmm. and, and then it be, could become a best practices sort of guidebook right. for other right. organizations, not just in sports, but in workplaces and others to start to start looking at. I think it's hard because this is such a contagious virus. But going back to the player that I was talking about with the daughter, yeah. um, if he could be tested and feel very confident it was an accurate, rapid test, and he could get it every day, like, you know, we do strep tests or flu tests and things like that. And it could be accurate, quick every day, he might have a lot more confidence going forward that he's not going to inadvertently infect somebody. Doc, I want to ask you, know, you about that, though. Um, from what I've read, m my most recent reading was that you need to have at least two to three days after getting the virus for it to show up on a test. Is that accurate? Right after exposure, we don't know for sure how long it would hmm. be before you start to test positive. What we There's two numbers that we have been keeping in the back of our minds. One is uh, 14 days. And the reason that number came about was because that was the longer end of when someone might develop symptoms after exposure. That's called the incubation period yep. between the time someone is exposed to the virus to the time they would develop symptoms. But what we've more recently learned over the last couple of months is that the average really is five days wow. before they develop symptoms. And I think to your question was, is that we now know that even before someone develops symptoms, the day or two before that, 
they are shedding virus. They can be contagious and they don't, they don't even know it, right? Because they feel fine still. So it's, it's really, you know, probably two or three days. It's not an exact science. It depends a little bit on each individual's immune systems. These basketball players are very uh, physically, you know, fit and their immune systems are probably revving at a pretty high rate. So they may fight this virus longer. So maybe for them, between exposure and positive test, it could be three or four days instead of two or three days. We don't know, but I do think the NBA has accounted for that with the regular testing. Mm. They didn't define regular testing precisely, but my guess is it's you know going to be every few days at least. They're, they're testing. Um, I took. I'll, I'll you know full disclosure. I t- I took the test, a COVID test, a couple weeks <laughs> ago. Negative. Thank God. <laughs> um, I must tell you. It was really uncomfortable. Yeah, it yes. was really uncomfortable. The test that they're going to take, where does it, it, it's not the the um, almost foot long swab, also, right? I mean, it's a different swab. Yeah, like but- on a scale of you know um, a quick you know like a prick on your finger for diabetes to what we used to do for um, STD tests as a man in this country. Where is the coronavirus test at? So, well, the, the, so the coronavirus diagnostic test, so the, the test that's actually looking for the virus, it, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a swab that's of the, the, we call the nasopharynx, so the area between the nose and the mouth, the back of the nose. There are some new swabs that have come out that are called these flocked swabs. They don't have to go as deep into the nasopharynx. Right. They have different lengths fibers on that, and they appear to be pretty good. And now there is also a couple of saliva tests. So that's kind of like if you've ever had a, like a 23andMe or something like that, you spit into a little cup, right. they can measure it with saliva as well. Um, the, the advantage of the deep swab test is that you can get really rapid results, 15 mm-hmm. minutes, even under 15 minutes. Whoa. The other tests take a little bit longer. And, I, and I'll just say as well, the, the, the blood test, while that you're talking about uh, the pinprick or, or even a needle in the vein test, yep. that is looking for antibodies. Mm. That is looking to see if you've had exposure to the virus in the past. That's not looking to see if you are actively right. infected with the virus. Mm. Now, mm-hmm. if you have antibodies, that could be a good thing in the sense that now your body should have some protection against the virus. So if everybody had antibodies, that'd be great. But that's not the case right now. Probably about 5% of the country has antibodies. That, you know, and I'm glad you brought up the antibodies thing because that was a conversation very early on. I feel like back in like April, people were antibodies. Oh, if you've been exposed, you might not be able to contract the virus again or blah, 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 blah. Like somebody like Rudy Gobert or Donovan Mitchell, can they just walk around carefree in the bubble because they already had it? You know, it's it's an interesting thing. And I, and I think you'll be surprised, but I would say generally... Yes. Mm, I think wow. once you have antibodies, it's pretty okay. protective. Now, why do I say that? I, again, I say this with humility because we're all learning about this. I say that for two reasons. One is that that is generally how the body works. Okay. What is a vaccine? A vaccine ultimately is trying to expose you to a little bit of the virus. Your body now recognizes that virus, makes antibodies. Next right. time it sees that virus, it fights it. The right. other way you can sort of become essentially vaccinated is to be actually go through the infection. It's the same thing. Your body seen the virus, your body recovered from it, now has antibodies. We don't right. know how long it lasts, how long the antibodies last and how strong it is. But I can tell you this, we're six, you know, whatever, five months into this in the United States. One thing I've really been keeping an eye out in all the reporting that I've been doing is are we seeing evidence of reinfection? 
So out of the mm-hmm. 2 million or so people, two and a half million people who become infected, are any of them people who were infected before and got infected again? We haven't really seen that, which means to me that people who got infected do seem to be protected from this. It's not, that's, that's, I'm extrapolating here, but I think, right. yes, to your answer to your question was, I think there is evidence that once you're exposed like this, you do have protection, maybe for the rest of the season, maybe for two years. Wow. We, we don't know yet, but I think right. it's there. And, and on well, the, hold on. And can those guys spread it? This protection means you yeah, just can't, great... you just good. <laughs> like you just like, you just have a force field, Corona force field around you. Great question. It, it, it's a, it, it, that, that is the fundamental question. Mm. And again, I, I, I don't mean to say I don't know all the time, but I'm saying For I sure. don't know a lot lately because I'm trying to be humble about of this. Course. But I think the answer to that question is also yes. It's, it's not likely that they're able. What happens is the virus, the virus is trying to get into their body. Okay. So let's say the virus even gets into their body. Right. Uh, because the antibodies are there, it immediately sort of keeps the virus from replicating to the point where there's enough viral load in the body that they would start to spread it. So not only should they not get sick because the virus doesn't replicate, but it also shouldn't get to the point of, of viral load that's high enough to spread where it. they become a contagious wow. person. Right. So yes, right. it can be, look, there's a lot of enthusiasm around antibodies to the point where people are taking survivors' antibodies and, and putting in the lab and then using that to try and protect other people. They are labs that are trying to grow their own antibodies. Mm. I mean, this is, a, this is a really interesting area, even short of a vaccine, that could be really useful. We're not there yet, right. but, I, but I, I've been following that story very deeply. Nice. Doc, doctor, I, I can't thank you enough for, for the time you amazing. spent. I want to I, I get you out on this. Um, you mentioned a vaccine. That's what I wanted to end on. Yeah. Um, my understanding is that the fastest vaccine is the one for mumps, and that took four years. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah. where, I mean, where are we? we can't, yeah. Where are we? We can't possibly. I know Dr. Fauci has said maybe we'll have a, a vaccine by the end of the year. I mean, is that realistic? Um, yeah. I think it is. Wow, you know, look, okay. and I'm, I'm, I'm a skeptical guy, so I'm glad that we're leaving on a couple of good pieces of news here. Right. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a born skeptic. As a, as a brain surgeon, that's, that's how you live your life. I, I assume right. first of <laughs> right. everything. Right. But, but, but what I would tell you is this. Um, first of all, I, I, I'm totally immersed in this, okay? So I'm talking mm-hmm. to people every day about this. I, I cannot turn my mind off on this story. And part of that is the vaccine story. And so right. what has happened already with regard to vaccine development uh, in the last few months is typically something that would take several years. Mm-hmm. Um, when the genetic code, the genetic uh, code for this vac- this virus was sent over from China to the United States in middle January, there were some developers that within a few days already had their vaccine platform plotted out. That hmm. process would typically take years. Okay. There was some pre-existing learning because they had started to work on a previous vaccine like this for SARS. So they immediately started building on that existing knowledge and those existing platforms. Right now, in July, we're already in phase three trials, which is the final phase. If those phase three trials show that this vaccine is effective and the safety data comes back positive as well, we could be in a position by the end of the year where we have a vaccine that is potentially a, a, a good vaccine. Now, the, the, the second part of that is you got to manufacture it, you got to distribute it, which is why right now in the country, they've already started to plan manufacturing some of these vaccines even before they get the final results back. They're taking right. gambles. They're taking several shots on goal. <laughs> some of them aren't going to work. 
But if right. they, they manufacture something and then all of a sudden they say, yeah, that was the one, the data came back, it's good data, we've already got 100 million doses in the can, we can start distributing, that would be a really positive thing. So right. there's a lot of ifs in there, I realize, but I would not be giving you this even sort of voice of optimism if I hadn't been talking to people for the last four months about this uh, almost every day. Well, doctor, that's a great way to end because optimism is in short supply. We need right it. Now around we the need country. it desperately. <laughs> so, I Dr. Know. Gupta, I cannot thank you enough for, for coming on and, and talking to us about it. This is this has been one of my favorite shows ever um, just because it was so much information and there was so much honesty. Um, and I think uh, that, that that's going to go a long way with people who follow the NBA and follow sports. So, I hope you stay safe and healthy. I hope your family stays safe and healthy. I hope you have a great four Fourth of July weekend, and I can't thank Best you enough you for guys. coming on. And let's, right. let's plan on going to a game together sometime. I'm done. Let's do <laughs> it. Done. Done. We're there. The three of us hanging out, having some beers. I love it. <laughs> Look forward thank to you, it doctor. One day. Thank All you right. Guys. Thank care. you. Stay safe, man. Was yes, sir. We can't do better than that. No, no, right? no, no. no. <laughs> that, that was informative and digestible. The two most unstoppable forces in the world right. right when you can give people information in ways that they're able to receive it and i thought i think he was pretty effective and, and clear in in you know explaining the the highs the lows the risks right. the all of that yeah. um it was fantastic that was great that was great so he might um, have a future in this broadcasting thing in this, in this business he might he might be able to do something i don't know he's got a, he's got a certain way that's kind of interesting kind of pleasant pleasant demeanor um, so <laughs> thank you for uh, listening this week. I hope uh, if you're listening if, uh, before the 4th of July that you have a great weekend. If it's during, I hope you're having a good one. And if it's after, I hope you had a good one because uh, we all could uh, use a few days off, I think. So take be safe out there. Please be safe. Wear a mask for God's sake. Wash your hands. Stay socially distant and enjoy the time with your family and friends. Um, we uh, appreciate it. Appreciate you uh, listening in and leave us a review uh, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen uh, to the uh, Hoops Adjacent Podcast and um, have a great holiday. See ya. Welcome to Hoops the comma is Adjacent on the Athletic Podcast Network.